<clears throat> well, praise the Lord. I'm not going to mention Gonzaga. Too many people are depressed this morning. I can't believe how much our emotions are connected to our ball teams, aren't they not? We all look like the Lord just lost rather than won, because, but it was Gonzaga, not the Lord. The good news is Jesus is the victor. Nobody will take that away from him ever. So you can still rejoice even though our Zags uh, bit the dust earlier than anticipated. It is going to cost me a, a thing of, of golf balls, unfortunately, but uh, still, uh, it is reality that uh, these things happen. <clears throat> In case anybody's interested, the ducks are still in it. <laughs> we are uh, today at Palm Sunday. And uh, Palm Sunday, of course, is, is a very important day in terms of the memory of what was about to occur in the life of Jesus. Because it is beginning with this day many, many, many years ago, that everything was put into motion that ultimately would bring Jesus to the cross, and then ultimately, very importantly, to his resurrection from the dead. And uh, so today, we're, we're in the second part of a three-part series called At the Cross, and we're going to talk about today <clears throat> the moment of truth, the moment of truth. In Luke chapter 23, verse 47, we read this verse. It says, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. In another place, it says, Certainly this was the Son of God. Now, at the cross of Jesus, at that particular moment, in that whole scene, at the cross of Jesus, there were some uh, people that experienced some things that absolutely changed their life, life-changing experiences. There would have been people who were standing on the uh, streets of Jerusalem as they watched Jesus walking by, brutalized, and carrying his own cross. And when they witnessed that event on that day, it would have been a life-changing experience for many of them. They never would be the same. For those that were on the hill called Golgotha uh, on that particular day, what they witnessed is Jesus was, was brutalized and beaten, battered, uh, blasphemed, crucified. When they witnessed that, they leave that hill, they would never be the same. Now, it would be the truth that if you think about it, some of the people that witnessed what happened on the day that Jesus was arrested and ultimately crucified, it would be true that some of those people actually left more hardened, more rebellious, more passionate in their rejection of Jesus than ever before. Some of those very people would have left their more self-assured of their own self-righteousness and would have even been deeper in their rejection of Jesus. It was a life-changing moment in a negative capacity for some. For others, they would have, for the first time in their life, come to the realization that Jesus truly, like the centurion, was the Son of God. 
For others, they were more convinced than ever before that what they had come to believe, that Jesus was the hope of their salvation, would be more assured now than they ever would have been before. Whichever position they took, their decision, whichever what it would have been, would have had a huge impact on eternity, without question. The moment of truth comes when you and I, like those people, are faced with the intersection of decision at the cross of Jesus. At that intersection, where you have to make a decision, will I go on without God, or will I now turn and believe truly he was the Son of God and accept him as Lord and Savior? I grew up in a Christian home. Thank the Lord for that. How many here grew up in a Christian home? Raise your, raise your hand. How many did not grow up in a Christian home? Raise your hand. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful that I grew up in a Christian home. And the reality of it is, is that the faith of my father down here was very important to my life, and, and, a great, and he was a great influence. But as much as his faith can influence my life, his faith can't save my life. I had to make a decision myself. I had to decide for myself. And as important as, as my life could be influentially on my own children's lives, every one of my children have to make a decision for themselves. My faith can't save my children. And as much as their faith is important and as influential as they will be on my grandchildren, their kids... Their kids will not be saved because of the faith of my children's faith. They'll be saved because they make a decision about what they're going to believe about Jesus. And so it's really a moment of truth. And when I made a decision to accept the Lord as my Savior, I came to an understanding that was absolutely, absolutely critical for me. It's one that I remind myself of at times because there are times when I am less than what I hope to be in the Lord. Anybody else like that? There, is there, do you encounter times when you look at yourself and think, man, I wished I would have done that better? Man, I wished I wouldn't have said that. Man, I wished I would have said that. Man, I wished I would have done I wish I believed better. What was going on? In my, you know, all those things. There are times that I wish that something was stronger in me. And, and there's, there's one understanding that's really helped me over the years. And, and it's this, and it's the real point of this entire sermon. And it is this. God does not throw away people. He throws away sin. God's not against you. He is for you. God isn't interested in throwing away human life. He's not interested in throwing away your soul. He throws away sin. That is the good news, and that's why this entire week becomes important to us, because God's not willing that you perish. He wants all of us to come to salvation and to come to that decision that will bring salvation to us. That intersection of decision that says, I'm no longer going to go on without God. I'm going to go on with God. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's there, he's praying, he finishes praying, and then suddenly one of his disciples shows up, Judas Iscariot. 
And when Judas shows up, he comes up to Jesus acting all happy and normal and like everything's good, like no problem. And he wraps his arms around Jesus and plants a kiss on his cheek and then steps away as having identified Jesus through this this betraying kiss, other men step forward, grab Jesus, and begin to arrest him. In that crowd of men that arrested him, there would have been the temple guard. Now, the temple guard are are actually uh, Jewish Levites. They They are men that have been appointed by the high priest and serve at the bidding of the high priest to stand guard at the gates of the temple. They, they are allowed, they are permitted by Roman law to do so during the night. During the day, the Romans uh, are busy doing a lot of the, the, the stuff around and guarding things. But in order to ensure that no unclean person comes into the temple at night... The Roman, the excuse me, the temple guard, which are our Levites, have authority to stand guard, and they are given watches through the night in which they stand and take care of business. And so, with Judas comes some of these temple guard, but with the temple guard there are also Roman soldiers, because the Roman soldiers are the authority uh, in the land. They are responsible for the peace and the order of the land. And so the only way that the Jews could arrest anybody and bring them to trial was in order that they would have also gained the the covering of the Romans. And so in this mass of people, you've got these temple guard, you've got Roman soldiers, and among the Roman soldiers would have been one who was called a centurion. Now the reason why he's called a centurion is because he is a captain over 100 of the legionnaires. The legionnaires are what they called the Roman foot soldiers. And, and so a centurion is a captain over 100. In fact, you can hear it in, the, in their title, centurion. If you hear another word that comes from the same root word, century, uh, century meaning 100, centurion means that they, he's a captain over 100 uh, foot soldiers of the Roman Empire. And, and so in this crowd, because it, is, it has to be a lawful event, it has to be something that dis, doesn't, doesn't uh, uh, somehow uh, go against Roman law. It has to have the peace and the order and, and under the covering of the Romans. There are not only the temple guard, but there are Roman soldiers with a centurion. This centurion is responsible then with his soldiers to be a part of and to be nearby through this whole process to ensure that something doesn't break out that creates an attempt by the Jews to actually try and regain authority in the land. And so the centurion is there. And the centurion, the way in which he becomes a captain of over a hundred, the way in which he does that is he begins as a foot soldier himself. And uh, he manages to work his way up through the ranks until he becomes a centurion. And the way in which he does that is that he proves himself valiant in battle, in, in war. 
and he proves himself very courageous, and he proves himself to be absolutely loyal and faithful to whatever command is given by those that are above him. That he doesn't ever even let his own emotions get involved in it. He doesn't, he doesn't try to apply his own values. He doesn't, he doesn't apply his own sense of compassion or empathy. He carries out the orders above him absolutely as demanded without any, any consideration of what he thinks about it. So in order for him to become a centurion, he's already had to be in battle He's had to be a guy that's proven himself faithful in war, and he's had, and, and valiant, and he's had to prove himself willing to unemotionally carry out exactly the orders that are above him without any concern of what it is. And so this centurion is on duty, and he is having to walk through this process by which Jesus is arrested, making sure that, that everything fits within the laws and the orders of the Romans, and to make sure that the Jews don't break out into some big horrific attempt to uh, take over the area from Rome. He's there, and under his watch, under his guidance... His soldiers, ultimately given charge of the crucifixion of Jesus, take Jesus into the praetorium, the, their Roman guard area there where they are at, and they take Jesus in there and they brutalize him. They beat him. They, they disrobe him and put a purple robe on him and mock him. They, under the guide of this centurion, they blindfold him and they slap him in the face and, and say, you're supposed to be a prophet. Tell us where, uh, who, who hit you. They hit him with a, with a, with a rod in the face. They, under his guidance, under the centurion's guidance, they would have taken a crown of thorns, put it on his head, uh, hit it onto his head, and causing more wounds to him as they mock him and spit upon him. Under the watch of this centurion, they would have uh, uh, taken him then and, and whipped him and beat him. He would have stood by counting each stripe to make sure that Roman law was applied exactly the way it was supposed to be, not one less than it was supposed to be applied to him, ripping open the flesh of Jesus. This centurion had to stand by and, and bring about this all these events according to what Pilate had ordered because Jesus was ordered to be crucified. And this centurion had to make sure that his men carried it out unemotionally exactly as was prescribed. And the only emotion that was allowed was the laughter, the mockery, uh, to try and tear down Jesus all the more. This centurion would have ordered the uh, fact that Jesus had to lift upon his uh, torn flesh his cross and carry it down the streets of Jerusalem. This centurion would have been standing nearby ordering uh, the events as his men would have driven the nails through the hands and feet of Jesus. And as he was elevated onto the cross and lifted up above, this centurion would have ordered the, the sign to be made 
this is the king of the Jews attached to the cross of Jesus at, above his head. Of course, infuriating the Jews, the Jews didn't like it because they didn't believe he was their king and they, were, they weren't happy with it. But this centurion wasn't interested in making anybody happy. He was only interested in callously carrying out the orders uh, that Pilate had given that this man be crucified. And, and as Jesus is lifted up onto that cross, uh, it's at noon, noon in the middle of the day, but it gets completely dark outside, and the centurion becomes aware of the darkness of, the thing, of how, how it is outside. It's supposed to be light, but it's completely dark. The centurion is there, and he's watching, and he's listening as he sees a great number of people completely agitated at Jesus, and he's probably wondering himself, what in the world did this man do to deserve this? You know, he's, and yet he's going to carry it out because that's his, his, his deal. He's supposed to do it. And so he's, he's, he's doing this, but he's probably in his mind thinking, how could such a man as this be any threat to these people? What in the world is the problem with all these people? As all the mockery is going on and he's listening to people walking by and, and yelling up at the cross and saying to Jesus, you know, he could save others, but he can't even save himself. And they're mocking him and mocking him. This centurion would have heard as Jesus in the darkness of that afternoon turn to one of the thieves on the cross and say to that thief, this day you'll be with me in paradise. This centurion would have heard all these things and watched. And then finally, he takes, uh, he has ordered a, a sponge dipped in vinegar and gall and lifted up to, to give to Jesus to, to, to have a drink. And just so you're aware of, again, how, how vile the whole nature of crucifixion was, you think, where did this, where did this, this uh, sponge come from that the Roman soldier would have that he would lift up to give Jesus a drink from? Well, every Roman soldier had one of them. They carried a sponge on them. The reason they carried their sponge around is because in that day, they didn't have toilet paper. And this is how they would clean themselves when they would have to go take care of business. And so they all, every Roman soldier had one of them with him. And so he would take one of those sponges that was used and completely defiled uh, by what a man would use it for, dips it in there to give Jesus a drink from. The humiliation, the degradation, the vile nature of everything Jesus went through, this centurion ordered it and watched all the things that were going on related to it. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross and it's dark outside and, 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 he's, and the centurion's watching as, as some are just mocking the Lord and some are weeping and crying and, and agonizing that he's hanging upon that cross... Finally, he hears Jesus as he lifts his head with, with great effort in weakness of body. Lifting his head, he cries out, it is finished. And his head drops as his spirit leaves his body. This centurion would have heard all of that and would have watched and the moment of truth came very quickly for the centurion because as soon as Jesus said, it is finished, and his spirit left him, suddenly 
the earth began to shake with a violent earthquake. Rocks begin to split open. You could probably have heard the screams of people who are running, looking for cover as the ground is undulating and, and just completely shaking. And uh, the, you probably would have heard screams. You would have probably seen horses bolting and bucking. You would have probably seen horse or f- birds that would have been sitting somewhere taking flight. Uh, the Bible says that even graves were broken open and people who had died in faith before the cross. Now when, the, when, the, when Jesus died, these graves break open and people resurrected and were seen walking around the streets of Jerusalem. And, and all of this is going on. And in the midst of it, in the midst of it, this centurion finally says, truly, this was the son of God. This is the Son of God. It was really the moment of truth when he finally came to to a reality that every single one of us have to come to at some point in our life. The, The moment of truth comes when we finally discover and realize that our lives have been lived completely at odds with what God is all about. The moment of truth happens when we finally come to grips with the reality that what we have been doing is, is, is resistant against everything that God is doing. And the centurion is now having to realize that he himself has just made sure, overseen the killing of who he now describes is the Son of God. How do you live with that? How do you go on? How do you, how do you manage to, to live with such thing when you know that your life has been at completely odds with God? What do you do when, when you discover that everything about you is on the wrong side of holy, like this centurion was? Well, here it is. Observation. God doesn't throw away people. God throws away sin. Even this centurion had an opportunity and a a place in which at the cross he could come to a realization that could change his life forever. He still, having killed the Son of God, could say yes to Jesus and find a place of grace for him. God does not throw away people. He throws away sin. Psalm 103 verse 12 said, As far as the east is from the west, so far... Has he removed our transgressions from us? Hallelujah. How far is the east from the west? It runs into the infinite. The reality is there is no boundary on the east side of east. And there is no boundary on the west side of west. It it is infinite. So when it says that he takes our transgressions and removes them as far as the east is from the west, then what it means is that he has essentially, he has in reality, he has factually, absolutely made it as if we had never sinned. It's incredible because I know I've sinned. How many here know you've sinned? And yet the wonder of Jesus and what he did for us is is that he removed our sin from us so far It's as if it never even happened. Jesus paid for it. 
Jesus took care of it. uh, Micah chapter 7 verse 19 in the New Living Translation says, you will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. Hallelujah for Jesus. He takes all of our sin and throws them into the depths of the ocean. That's pretty important because the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. So the reality of it is, unless Jesus removes my sins from me, then what I have to look forward to isn't all that grand. Why is it important that Jesus took our sins and removed them so far from us? It is this, insight number one. Because the end is not the end. The end is not the end. Now some people have foolishly believed that the end is it. They foolishly believe that that once you die in this life, there is nothing after that. They foolishly have believed that. I don't say it uh, in disdain of those who believe that, because I get it. Sometimes, you know, people, uh, there are a lot of things that happens in people's lives that bring them to that particular way of thinking. But unfortunately, uh, it is a foolish point to take because it's not the end. When you end up in this life, you die. The Bible says it's appointed a man wants to die. When that happens, it says now you've got to face God. Now the judgment. So the end is not the end. It's a perceived end for those who are having trouble with faith. And that's why it's so important that you and I keep praying for people and keep loving people. Because, see, the reason why people that are so opposed to, to your life as a Christian is because faith is just barely, barely, if at all, even alive in them. And so they're having trouble. And in the reasonableness of their thinking, they assume you're being unreasonable. Rather than, rather than looking at them evil in, in an evil way, we ought to love them. We ought to pray for them. Because lest something changes, then eternity has a different end for them. So we need to pray for them and love them and love them into eternity. The end is not the end. Revelation chapter 21, verses 6 through 8 says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, some t- we, we think that, that there's only one death, but the Bible says there's a second death. And the second death has to do with what happens in eternity after the first death. What will we do with Jesus? Will we believe in him? Will we accept him now? Will we love him so that we have the promise of eternal life? Or will we go on without God? See, it's that intersection of decision. It's the moment of truth where every person has to decide, what are you going to do about Jesus? See, the end is not the end. There is a second death. Insight number two is this. 
Jesus has overcome the second death for us. Hallelujah for Jesus. He has overcome the second death for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 says, You were without Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What Jesus did at Calvary, what Jesus did on that day in giving up his life, surrendering his life to be crucified by that centurion and his soldiers paid off that that centurion could ultimately come to this conclusion truly he was the son of god and make a decision to say yes to jesus in his life that decision affects all of us as well we once were far away from Jesus. We didn't believe in him, or, or even if we did, we didn't have any, any desire for him in, in, in our lives. All we cared about was us. But at some point, we come to the conclusion that we say, I need Jesus in my life. I can't keep going on without him. I need him in, his li in my life. I want to know that when the end comes in this life, that what is awaiting for me in eternity is not a second death, but the promise of God, that's what I look forward to. Jesus overcame that second death for us. God doesn't throw away people. He throws away sin. God doesn't take any joy when, when anybody has to experience the second death. He experience, there's no joy in the Lord for that at all. He loves every single person. Insight number three, it's your moment of truth. I think probably most of us here have come to that conclusion and have, have decided uh, in, in, the, in the affirmative for Jesus. You came to the intersection of decision at the cross. What are you going to do? Is he the son of God? If he's the son of God, then what will you do with him? What will you do about what he has to say? How will you live for him? What are you going to do with it? And you make a decision to go on with him and no longer without him. We have to decide whether we let him pay for our sins or not. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 and 20 says, I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that you both and your descendants may live, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life in the length of your days. See, it's, it's our moment of truth to decide, will I cling to him? Because it's a life and death decision. It really is. Some people make it such a narrowly defined religious decision that, that they make it hard. They, they almost, before, they, before the fish is caught, they start trying to clean the fish. You know, well, if you're going to be a Christian, then you this, then this, and this. And, and you ought to know that Christianity means you none of this, and it means all of this. You know, we're saved by grace through faith not of our works. The very first and most important decision is a very simple one. Will I embrace him as Lord and Savior? Will I say yes to him? Will I accept him? He paid the debt that I could not pay. Jesus did that for me. He did it for you. It's a choice every one of us has to make. It's our moment of truth. He is your life. Cling to him. 
Psalm 73, verse 27 and 28 says, For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God. Those who are far from him, they perish. I take no joy in saying that. I, I, I believe completely that God takes no joy in making it known because it's not God's heart to cause people or to, to, to have people go through a perishing event. It's God's heart to save us from that perishing event. It's God's heart to draw all men to himself. That's, that's God's heart. And so we should draw close to him because when we're far from him, then we end up in a perishing possibility. You draw near to Jesus and you say yes to him. You move towards a healing life decision. Insight number four, repent and live. Luke chapter 13, verse three says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, Jesus made it possible that we could be saved from that perishing event. Jesus made it possible. And all of us come to a moment of truth, just like the centurion at the foot of the cross, a life-changing experience in which he had to come to grips with one very important reality. Truly, Jesus is the Son of God. And what are we going to do about that? Knowing that Jesus paid for our sins, we don't have to perish. We can experience eternal life. What are we going to do about it? Well, we repent. Because if we don't, then the Bible says we'll perish. What does it mean to repent? It means to say, oops, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I fouled up. Forgive me, Lord. It's, it's that easy. It's that simple. Lord, I need you. Forgive me of my sin. And he does. And then you begin to go a different direction following him. John 3, 16 and 17, I'm sure most of you probably can quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why did this whole crucifixion thing happened. He, he did that happen just because it's not like Jesus was up in heaven bored, you know? Well, I think I'll go down there and see what them humans are really experiencing, you know? That wasn't the, the deal. He did it for a purpose, in order to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, that people like you and I and that centurion can come to grips with this reality that Truly, he was the son of God. He was the only one who could pay for our sins. And that if we accept that and we, we accept him as Lord and Savior, that in the, in, the, in the end, the reality of it is the end does not end where we think it does, but he gives us eternal life. One of the great joys, I suppose, as a pastor are those very, very convincing moments when I know that when I have to do a service... You know, as John will be involved in something related to his brother, and you're, you're standing there and you know, you know that you know that you know that that individual who came to this end will not experience another end, that eternal life is there because 
of Jesus. Because of Jesus. I know my mother's there in heaven because of Jesus. You all have many people that you know that are there because of their faith in Jesus. The worst thing in the world would be for any of us to think, well, I got time, or to think, I, I can put that off, or I don't really care, or whatever. No, no, no. You need Jesus. Every one of us need the Lord. And it's the reason why every one of us should be praying for those that don't know the Lord, because we love them. Not because we need to enforce our religious viewpoints. Frankly, I really don't care about religious viewpoints. All the things that have divided churches for years, good churches, all the little doctrinal points and stuff. You know, the only thing I care about is, do you know that Jesus died for you, rose from the dead to empower you to be able to be free from the second death? Have you accepted that in your life? And are you going on with him, trusting that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God will direct you as you continue to live for Jesus now? That's what really matters. Everything else is kind of peripheral. That has to be settled. Would you just bow your head with me this morning? If you're not sure, if you're not sure, then I want to invite you this morning to, to be sure, to be absolutely certain. A centurion, given the task of absolutely brutalizing Jesus until his life was extinguished from him, so the world thought... So the world thought, sat at the bottom of that cross and said, wow, he really was the Son of God. What decision will you come to? And if you come to that conclusion, will you say yes to him? And if you're here this morning and you've not said yes to him or you believe but you've been a little wishy-washy and this Christmas season you need to reconfirm and just say, you know what, absolutely, Lord, I know I trip over myself a lot, but I, I want you to know I need you in my life. I want to know that heaven has a place for me. And if that's you, just lift your hand right where you're at and you can put it back down. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. How many here would say, I sometimes I probably need to, to live with the Lord a little more on my mind than I do, and that my life sometimes goes on for a season or so and just not that I don't love him I do not that I'm not saved I know I am I just sometimes kind of get so busy with life that I I'm not sure I focus as much on following him as cleanly as I'd like to and I, this morning I just say Lord I need your help to refocus myself on you and if that's you lift your hand right up amen amen father we come to you in the name of Jesus Thank you that you loved us so much that this week, many, many years ago, is the week in which the only begotten Son of God, sinless in this world, began a journey, a painful, brutal, bloody journey that ended in his life upon the cross. Jesus, I thank you that you having full understanding of what you were walking towards 
did not hesitate, did not stop, but kept going until your final breath as a man living this world finally came to an end, that you then could resurrect from the dead and give us the promise of eternal life. I thank you, Lord, for having done so. Would you help us, Lord, that as we live for you and as we go throughout this year, and there's so many things that challenge us, there's so many things that cause us to, to Lord, you know, just be upset and frustrated. And even this morning, Lord, as I, 5.30 this morning, just glanced at the news to see what was going on in the world, heard a, heard a woman interviewing a preacher and and she she speaking of those who live according to your word speaking of those who believe in your bible and live according to it uh, ask this preacher who doesn't live according to your word having heard her say what do you do with all the knee-jerk reactions that some supposed christians do in relationship to the bible Lord, it offended me. But Lord, I have to stop and pull back and think, well, how in the world could she believe any different when her eyes of faith are blinded and when we as Christians sometimes live in such ways that causes people to not understand how greatly we love and how greatly we've been loved. Help us, Lord, to live in such a way that people like her realize our living for you is not a knee-jerk reaction to, to the Bible. Our living for you is in complete, humble submission to the truths of your word. That, Lord, we do nothing to, to defile who you are. Help us to live for you every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah for Jesus. This week I'll be... Uh, coloring Easter eggs with my grandkids. I know this because I know my wife, and she will have already begun to get eggs together. But more importantly, I get to spend time with those little ones and convey to them the realities of Jesus. He died and rose from the dead. Make sure you love someone to Jesus this week. Bring them with you next week. We're going to have a wonderful time honoring the Lord next week. God bless you. Don't forget the cafe is open this week. It's not next week, so get your fill of bacon today and be blessed. Give someone a good squeeze near you. See you soon. Did I say Christmas season? <laughs> Christmas, hello, hello, hello.